1: Uh, Let's turn our attention to to other issues uh, that are related uh, to the gathering of wealth. And obviously... Uh, one of the features that has become big in our in our time is the whole relationship of of work and life to technology on the one hand, and what it enables us to do, or what it can get in the way of our doing, depending on how you view it. Um, it's inter- I, I love watching people talk about technology because they either they either are technophiles, they really love technology, or they they really have questions about it, and they want to go back to a era that I'm afraid we have. Probably permanently left, uh, and then uh, and then issues of the environment. So let's talk about this. What does technology do for us, and how can it work against us?
2: Well, I think it comes back to that question of what is creation. Uh, if we have that static model of creation I was talking about before, then we will think that the natural world is in its right state when human beings are not affecting it. Uh, But actually, if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, there are all kinds of clear uh, indications that it's God's intention that human work will uh, interact with the natural environment and to some degree transform it uh, so that uh, the goal or ideal is not a natural environment in which human impact has been zero.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, and that that idea of developing, cultivating, building uh, coming up with new and better ways to do things I think is a part of the original plan that human beings are intended to develop technologically as well as economically uh, that human beings are are intended to come up with better and better and better ways of doing things Um, now there are limits to this even before the fall so, for example, we are told that the natural world reflects or manifests or declares God's glory. And that would, in fact, place a limit to how extensively we could transform it. You know, if the, uh, if the forests and the, and the oceans and the skies uh, manifest God's glory, then that means we cannot have simply an arbitrary and unlimited mandate to do whatever we want with them, right? Uh so I appreciate that limitation and that's important and worth bearing in mind. And similarly, we only want to uh use technology, invent technology in ways that are beneficial. Uh the fall really uh believe it, you know, surprisingly, the fall complicates things. Can you imagine mm-hmm,
1: that? That's
2: right. Uh it's uh it, it, it creates this inherent or intrinsic tendency of development in the wrong direction. We see that especially in the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, where uh, the story is framed in terms of a technological development. The people at Babel invent a better brick-making technology. And that's what prompts them to think, hey, let's build the biggest city the world has ever seen and we'll really be somebody. Mm -hmm. right?" So there's this... Uh, after the fall, there's this natural default tendency for technology to be used, uh, again, to create that universe in which I am the God, right? Like you were talking about before. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, But again, uh, the redemptive turn that centers on Christ and that we are supposed to be cooperating with does not consist of getting back to Eden, mm-hmm. does not consist of restoring a pristine natural world where human beings have had no impact. Uh, again, uh, the, the narrative ends with a city, right? God cannot be against cities just because the Tower of Babel was bad, mm-hmm. uh, because we know that the New Jerusalem is coming. You know, the city is a good thing. Human beings are made to be city builders. Uh, and obviously that doesn't mean that you know you're a better Christian if you live in an urban center rather than a suburb or a rural area because those are communities too right human beings are made to be community builders uh, but, but technology and uh, economic development which go hand in hand uh, are not intrinsically bad they're just fallen and need that redirection toward their uh, toward their original created intention
1: and so again, we're back to the theme about the need to be good stewards of that which God has given us, and to handle that stewardship responsibly. You allude to something here that that um, I don't think I know the, the 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 background story to this. You talk about the destructive case of ethanol in talking about the environment, and to be honest with you, I had no idea what you were alluding to. So so I'm all ears. Uh, well,
2: uh, it's a, it's a useful illustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're interested, Time Magazine did a, a huge cover story on this a while back um, but it's, uh, it's, been, it's been written about in quite a lot of places, you, there's all kinds of places you can find information on it. Basically uh, ethanol, as you probably know, is made from corn mm-hmm. uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an a- additive that they mix into gasoline because there's a law requiring them to do this. The theory is that it reduces pollution uh from uh, from your car's emission to mix this ethanol in uh unfortunately the evidence is accumulated pretty strongly that ethanol does not have an environmental benefit hmm. uh but requiring people to put ethanol in cars has a huge benefit for corn growers nah. uh who are able to organize politically and whenever there's a a struggle over this the people who are paying for it are only losing a tiny bit right the the amount of money that you lose because of the ethanol mandate is very small uh but the people who gain gain tremendously and and we see this across many issues this is the perennial problem of democratic politics mm. that uh it's easy to create programs where a few people benefit a great deal and everyone else loses a tiny bit mm. uh, and these programs can be very destructive but it's hard to mobilize anybody uh against them the the worst part of it is uh, these programs cause the price of corn on the open market to go up hmm. because when you buy more you have an artificially created demand for more corn uh, and you know to to purchase more corn uh, but you know the the ability to scale up corn production is limited. You know, there's a, there's a cycle there's a, and, and there are limitations to how much li- cultivatable land is available and so forth. And what that means is food uh, prices are higher. Now, you and I can probably afford to pay more for corn and for corn-based food products, but in parts of the world where people are living on margin... Uh, A small increment in the price of food could have a devastating effect on people's ability to feed their families. Hmm. Uh, So what we're seeing is a policy that's justified out of environmental concern, uh, but actually doesn't seem to benefit the environment very much. But it uh, it does have the impact of making food more expensive for people who need it.
1: Okay. Well, you've explained the destructive case of <laughs> ethanol for me there. Let, let's turn our attention to uh, to the challenges of citizenship in this area. And here you raise the question of uh, of freedom of religion as a social model, the importance of freedom of religion. We've done lots of podcasts with lawyers about about religious liberty and the importance of that dimension of things and creating a certain kind of climate and environment for people uh, to operate uh, both personally in terms of their conscience and spiritually. I like to make the point that freedom of religion is a benefit that actually benefits anyone whether they're religious or not because part of it is about freedom of conscience uh, to operate. And then then you talk about politics being primarily uh, about justice and of course justice is a very complex topic Um, so let's let's take them one at a time Uh, freedom of religion and uh, you have this a statement in the in the paper I've I've excerpted it out because I think it's worth reading the challenge arises from freedom of religion as a social model this was noted above social consensus about religion and morality has broken down people do not share a common language for working out their differences about what is right or fair society has increasingly turned the coercive power of the state to resolve its disputes because society lacks a common knowledge of moral concepts there's little shared basis for understanding what actions are good or legitimate so more and more social conflicts come to be settled through political power struggles so that makes us sound like we're kind of in a WWF of life here in which we've got uh, people battling with one another how do we how do we how do we get out of that cycle, or is there a way out of that cycle?
2: Well, um, if I had an easy answer for that, um, I'd be off implementing it uh, <laughs> rather than doing podcasts here. But uh, I, I don't have an easy answer. But I'm, I'm increasingly, uh, I'm increasingly convinced uh, that the key issue is we have to stop thinking only in terms of law and start thinking in terms of social model that religious freedom is a model of society before it is a legal and constitutional uh, institution and that means what we really have to do is make religious freedom plausible to people make it plausible that people ought to have this freedom uh, and, and the, the heart of that is restoring that common language of what's good and fair uh, giving people a sense that, yes, in fact, we can work out our differences, maybe not ultimately, but sufficiently for peaceful life with one another, uh, that we can find a formula of peace, as Peter Berger puts it in his new book and um, I think the major battlefield on which that 's going to happen is work and economics, frankly. Uh, Because it is in workplaces where people develop common language to solve problems uh, in a diverse, pluralistic environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, a, A workplace may have a Christian and a Buddhist and an atheist and then one guy who's spiritual but not religious and another guy who doesn't know what he is. Uh, But those people have got to have a common language for solving problems or they're not going to be able to keep the factory open or keep the the storefront open or keep whatever they're doing, it's going to fall apart if they don't have a common language. Uh, It's in the workplace where we learn to uh, talk to each other, understand each other, and trust each other. Uh, In spite of the fact that we have different ultimate beliefs, I think the more Christians can get out into workplaces and businesses uh, and create flourishing there, uh, the more it's going to be plausible to people that, yeah, in fact, we want a society in which people live out their faith in every aspect of their life and they have the freedom to do that.
1: Well, it, it, it strikes me that the, the, the goal of creating religious freedom and what I think is the corollary with it, freedom of conscience is, is that there's a space for the heart which says, this is a space into which the state is not allowed. Um, and in those areas that don't relate to the business of the state, um, uh, allowing people to have that freedom of expression and that freedom of, of being who they are, the way God has made them, it, it is, a, is a freedom worth protecting. And it's interesting that someone as diverse as, as Thomas Jefferson, who was a well-known Unitarian on the one hand, and, and John Adams, who was about as orthodox a Christian as you could have found in the time in which he lived, that they shared a common value in terms of how to build a society around – this idea that there should be a, a bill of rights in which religious freedom was was certainly a part of what was going on, and a part of what should should be affirmed that the state has no business dictating uh, where the heart of a person um, should how and how the heart of a person should function.
2: Absolutely, and I think uh, part of what we've lost is a sense coming back again to putting the good on the table before we talk about the bad. A sense of what is it that's good about that that area of activity that the state doesn't intrude into. What is the benefit? What is the thing that is satisfying and meaningful to people uh, that would then be jeopardized if the state invades that space? Uh, So restoring a sense of human beings as responsible agents under God. Uh, a, a sense of human beings who are responsible to the transcendent as uh, as Václav Havel put it
1: now uh, when we turn to the subject of justice and, and uh, there are lots of places i could go here but i think there's one place i want to to kind of zero in on, we, we've got a discussion that sometimes is raised, or a distinction that's sometimes raised that's worth contemplating, and that's the difference between what we might call civil or natural justice versus theological justice. And as we consider uh, what that means, and we've, we've lost Greg here, so let, let's wait and see if we can get him back.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind the scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more.
2: Yeah, uh, can you hear me? You dropped out, but now you're back.
1: Okay, good. We've lost the picture, but we've got the sound, so I'll just resume. so as we think about the difference between civil and natural justice and theological justice and you're discussing politics and economics as, moral, as a moral phenomenon, uh, what, what do you have in mind when you're, when you're raising these areas in relationship to each other?
2: Well, you mentioned before in the context of religious freedom that uh, as people lose that common moral language, they increasingly turn to power to solve their uh, problems. And so you uh, had this image of the sort of pro-wrestling arena. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we are seeing politics degrade into a pro-wrestling arena. And what I have in mind when I wrote that passage is uh, increasingly people are thinking that that's the only model of politics that's possible. Uh, that politics is finally about power, uh, and I, I want to uh, push back as hard as I can on that because if we give that ground, if we say politics is really about power, uh, we we abandon any possibility of humane politics. Mm-hmm. We abandon any possibility of justice that includes the civil order.
1: Yeah, it'll be the battle uh, of we, special interests.
2: No, that's right. Yeah. Well, and we don't get the option of checking out from civil, uh, the civil order to go pursue justice in an apolitical way mm-hmm. uh, because uh, you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not, I don't mean that in a sinister way. I mean that uh, because human beings are made to be members of their communities. Mm-hmm. Human beings are uh, sexual creatures and familial creatures. They are economic creatures. They're also political creatures. That is one part of who we are as as God's uh, as God's created beings. Uh, so you, if if we kind of say, well, politics, yeah, that's all that's all about power, uh, then we're seeding ground we can't afford to seed. Uh, so that's why I think it's important to restore a sense that politics is about justice. Uh, With all the complicated uh, issues that that arises, uh, that 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 raises for us.
1: Yeah, and and I think that the the a contrastive model of thinking about politics being about power is to raise the question of politics being about the pursuit in a diverse society of what we might call the common good and wrestling hard for f- trying to figure out what that ground is, which forces these diverse groups actually to interact with one another in a, in a way in which you're treating someone as your neighbor um, and in and, 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 and very relational kinds of terms. So I think that the, you know, a politics of power ends up devolving into a kind of confrontation on a, on a tribal scale. I've got, go ahead.
2: I think that's right and I think it comes back to that common language we were talking about mm-hmm. that you cannot have a common good if you don't have a common moral language. Yes. Because if if I talk about the common good and mean one thing but you talk about the common good and you mean something completely different, it's not common.
1: Yes. Right? And, and in fact I uh, I once was on a panel uh, I, I write for a blog here the Dallas Morning News weekly that asks religious questions. I've been doing it for about 8 years. And we once had a panel of 7 and this, this panel is made up of people as diverse as you can imagine because it's a reflection of the larger society. That's part of what paper is trying to achieve. And the discussion was the common good. And I opened the panel by saying, well, the difficulty is, is that everyone on the surface likes the idea of common good, but what do you do when you can't agree on what the good is and you don't hold things in common? And then how do you get to a common good? Right. And the only way to get there is to work hard to have a conversation about the things that you at least can potentially share in the spaces that you might disagree about and then figure out how to how to how to disagree well if I can say it that way. Yes. And then and then go from there.
2: I think uh, this question was central to what the American founders had in mind when they designed the Constitution. Uh, you, You will hear people say that the the main point of Federalist 10 is that there is no common good, there's only competition among factions. That is not at all what Federalist 10 actually says. Uh, Federalist 10 says, what we need is a system in which no faction is dominant so that the common good can have some space to emerge. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is absolutely an assumption that there is a common good and that the uh, goal of politics is to promote the common good. Uh, But the, the founders were very shrewd in thinking about Uh, creating a system in which people would have the right to disagree and that would be a a, a pluralistic system in which no because it's pluralistic no one faction has enough power to simply get its way. Mm -hmm. Uh, That compromise and uh, uh, sort of struggle that leads to compromise rather than struggle that leads to uh, violent conflict or injustice and suppression. Or triumph and
1: vanquishing.
2: Right. And it, the idea is not a perfect world where there is no struggle or disagreement. The idea is how do we, how do we bring about disagreement that ends in compromise rather than disagreement ending in either injustice or violence.
1: And a, and a And a compromise that ends up being functional in a way that society doesn't break down and become so dysfunctional that you, you can't live with the person next to you uh, in the home next to you whose beliefs may be different than your own.
2: Right. One thing that I uh, like to say is uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, said, it is impossible to live in peace with people who you think are damned.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, And uh, part of what, I'm I'm unashamed in my love for the American experiment. What I love about the American experiment is that we're out to prove him wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, we're out to prove that that's not true. That we can live in peace with people who we think worship the wrong gods and have a uh, an eternal fate that is uh, that is horrifying beyond imagining. And
1: vice versa. I mean, the and people vi- really think that way about us. And so, oh,
2: that's right. Yeah. We're all we're all in this together. Exactly. Out to prove we're so wrong on that. Yeah.
1: Well, it's a it, it's an it's an interesting question, and I sometimes think that the church forgets that the place where where the society is supposed to reflect the standards of God, the primary place is the actual believing community, that it's the place where the spirit resides, uh, where people are set apart and sanctified, where the opportunity to overcome that which is represented by the fall, uh, where where that which leaves us short is compensated for by the gifts of grace that God gives to us. Those are the communities where we're supposed to see really functional relationships, and, and even in that context we live in a fallen world and it comes up short. But at least there's a there's a there's a chance, whereas to expect that of the larger outside more diverse world is probably a very unrealistic expectation, and, and means that we have to think through how we live in that kind of a, kind of a uh, in the unredeemed spaces of our creation.
2: Well, and uh, an expectation that is not at all supported by scripture itself either. Uh, I find it useful to uh, distinguish between justice in the natural, natural justice and supernatural justice, mm-hmm. uh, that supernatural justice is the perfect standard that God rightly expects of all people, uh, but that is actually only, uh, only manifested by those who have supernatural help to, to achieve it. Uh, but then scripture and Christian uh, historic you know, political philosophy have recognized justice in another sense justice at the natural level what the natural man is capable of doing even after the fall.
1: Well, let, we're almost done here. We've got one more major topic before we summarize, and that is a category in a section that you entitled The Rule of Law. And and here you discuss the goal of government and economics, and you say that it is to provide conditions for what we call natural justice necessary for human flourishing in an economic context It requires fair, impartial, and stable laws, and uh, this raises the question of, of of how we do that, and I think in two ways, one, providing an environment in which our society functions through its businesses and through its marketplaces that that allows for the development and growth uh, of, of an environment for human flourishing, and then the other half of the equation uh, – and sometimes these two things are pitted against one another, perhaps unfortunately, in fact, almost for sure unfortunately. And that is the challenge of acting out of a legitimate concern for the poor and developing uh, our policies in relationship to the poor in such a way that we uh, are careful not to create a dependency that undercuts human dignity, but actually allows for 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 real growth um, as part of that flourishing. So. Put that all together for me. Yeah, I'm I'm
2: glad that you've I'm glad that you've related the rule of law to the problem of dependency. Uh, The essential characteristic of the rule of law is that all people in society are under the same rules. You don't have a ruling class that is not bound to the law and a ruled class that is bound to the law, but everyone uh... from the top to the bottom is under the same rules uh... this relates to dependency because i think the danger we need to be concerned about is the emergence of a two-tier society in which the upper half is seen to be productive economically and uh... Essentially they can be trusted to run their own lives uh... but a lower half that is uh... uh has uh... broken families and uh... Breakdown of work relationships and economic relationships. And the perception, unfortunately, will become that people in that bottom half are not capable uh, of, of managing their own lives. And I think there's a serious danger of their rights being taken away uh, because of the perception that they're not able to be trusted to be stewards. I mean, it comes back, we started with stewardship, now let's come back to stewardship. All human beings, no exceptions, are made to be stewards of the world. We are all fellow stewards together. Uh, and a society that says some people are stewards and other people are not stewards, they are rather to be stewarded by uh, by the stewards, um, is a society that loses the rule of law and just, I can't even begin to describe the, the, the evils that flow from that.
1: So so the point here is to work on uh, on having law that allows for the for the growth of the individual for the for the opportunity for the person to be productive in contributing to the society in a way uh, that, that helps it move along uh, And then on the other hand for the pr- people who are on the kind of the, the edge of that society and risk falling off the edge if I can say it that way to use a picture um, f- figuring out a way to help them but to help them hopefully in a way in which they don't become permanently dependent, on on the pullback, but actually have a chance of moving out of that dependency.
2: Absolutely, I think uh, those go those go hand in glove. If we're not doing and if we're not doing the one, we're going to lose the other. Uh, I think my my friends on the right who are enthusiastic about uh, you know economic uh, macro structures but are not actively working to provide that hand up to the poor, and my friends on the left who are enthusiastic about a hand up for the poor uh, but don't want to hear about the rule of law and and property rights and that kind of thing, boy, these are you know it's, to me that's chocolate and peanut butter. It's two great tastes that taste great together. Uh, you're <laughs> mm-hmm. not going to keep one if you don't have the other.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, so you wrap up this way uh, when you come to the section, it says, concern and care for the good of our neighbors, which should be our bedrock concern in all the areas canvassed above, begins with respect for for their irreducible dignity as persons. That respect is most basically expressed in our refusal to treat human beings as property. This is why the rule of law is fundamental to virtuous citizenship. Arbitrary exercise of coercive power is almost the definition of what it means to treat people as property. As we carry out the challenge of achieving vi- virtuous citizenship, let us look first to the dignity of all our neighbors and thus affirm that the rule of law must structure the state's course of power, shunning its use of its power for any end outside those bounds. This will not only keep our cultural engagement humane, it also will reassure those outside the church that our desire to impact the culture does not come at the expense of their rights and will in fact be a blessing to them and not a threat. And what strikes me about that citation is ministering to the culture in such a way with such a service, with such a concern that that people understand inherently that you are out for their best. Even in those places where the conversations might get uncomfortable because you might challenge them at certain moral levels, there's no doubt that what is motivating that conversation in every case is an effort to be concerned for the best of what the person uh, can experience in life.
2: Absolutely, and I think if we don't have that, uh, we, we aren't going to accomplish much else. I wrote an article not long ago uh, under the title, Love is Our King uh and i said the the one of the most dangerous things of all is the attempt to persuade by people outside the church to persuade people that christians don't love their neighbors uh, that we're out to get people. I said we cannot afford to lose that. we that's in the chess game, we can lose a pawn or we can lose a bishop or we can lose a rook. but if uh, if we don't love our neighbors and if we're not seen to be loving our neighbors, that's the king in this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, we We've got to be loving our neighbors and we've got to be seen to be loving our neighbors.
1: And, and that doesn't necessarily mean leaving them alone. That means caring for them enough to, to engage with them in an honest kind of way, but in an honest and humble kind of way that, uh, that in the midst of the challenge the person has no doubt that what is creating the sense of, of our challenging them in some cases is our very deep concern for their well-being, even if they don't, even if they don't agree with the, with the nature of the challenge.
2: And this is why I think Christians manifesting their faith in the way they do things like work and buy and sell and do business creates the plausibility of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That when Christianity is seen as an isolated, decontextualized gospel message and nothing else... Uh, it doesn't come across as something credible. But when Christians manifest a way of life that is clearly grounded in love of God and neighbor and, you know, death to self for the sake of God and neighbor, uh, it makes the gospel plausible. That's why uh, integrating our faith with our work and manifesting our faith uh, in the marketplace, I think, is critical not only to the future of our culture and the health of the church, but also to the credibility of the gospel in the world.
1: Yeah, I Yeah, the example I love. Love to come back to on this is that when Katrina happened, and all the uh, all the faith community banded together to rescue the multitudes of people who needed help. Um, even uh, even that uh, spiritual organ of, of uh, pietistic reflection the New York Times uh, uh, wrote an editorial saying what a mess we would have been in uh, had not these uh, these um, houses of faith stepped in and given the manpower and the care and the service that they gave to, to reach out and help people who are in need and a great self-sacrifice in doing so and, uh, in accomplishing something the government was unable to accomplish.
2: And I think the transition we need to make now is we can't wait for the hurricane. Right. We can't sit around waiting for a disaster so we can go love our neighbors. We've got to figure out how this happens 24 7.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. Well, that's a terrific note to close out on. Uh, we've got one more of these commentaries to do where we kind of pull everything together in the whole work and look at the summary and, and review some of the ground that we've covered. This has been a fascinating journey and a reflection on how theology and work come together, how to Rescue ourselves from our tendency to be dualistic and maybe even approach our work the way uh, we're often taught in a secular environment to do so, which is to say, you know, there's what you, your work that you do over here and you. Earn your money to do the spiritual things that go on over there, and you know, uh, uh, may the Twain never meet. And I think the biblical position is what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. You know that 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 uh, that faith and work and life and theology all go together. It's a twenty four seven operation. God is calling us to be His people wherever He has us, whenever He has us, and that every conscious moment is dedicated in ministry and service to God.
2: Amen to that.
1: Well, thank you again, Greg. We appreciate your being with us, and we thank you for joining us on The Table and hope that you'll be with us again soon.
0: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu the table Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.